You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. Hello, everyone. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. In this episode, we go in-depth uh, in an interview with Timo Ahopelto, who is a founding partner of Lifeline Ventures, an investment firm headquartered in Helsinki. You might have heard about them recently because in February of this year, they raised a 57 million euro uh, fund, which um, they're going to invest in a whole new round of investments with a particular focus on three areas, mobile, gaming, and health, uh, which are all areas that they have existing portfolio companies in. Um, But one of the things which unites their investment approach across those three different um, areas of focus, if you like, uh, is this shared interest in the importance of user-centered design and how that can be a strategic differentiator for their portfolio companies. Timo himself is someone that I met when he was leading strategy for um, a pioneering uh, MVNO called Blick, uh, which we talk a little bit about during the interview. Um, and now, in addition to Lifeline Ventures, he's on the board of Tekes, which is the Finnish uh, state-funded um, organization that supports their technology industry. Uh, and we talk a little bit about some of the ways in which different countries around the world are supporting uh, entrepreneurs in the, the technology field. Uh, and also go into some of the specifics about how startups uh, can work with their investors and can work with design and the importance of whether or not that comes from the founders or whether that's something which can be bought in through agency relationships. Uh, so it ends up being a pretty far-reaching and, uh, and detailed conversation um, and one which really taps into the expert knowledge uh, Timo has acquired in all these years Um, of investing and picking winners. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Timo. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Hey, thanks for your invite. This is really great. I think we've got to go back quite a few years to when you and I first met and you at the time were working for a MVNO and mobile advertising startup, Blick. But today your primary role is rather different with Lifeline Ventures, a venture capital firm. How did that transition come around? Where did the inspiration come from to move from the world of startups into the world of investing? Yeah, I I kind of label myself still as an entrepreneur and kind of early stage, I would call operator in a way. I, I, I would hate being investor or kind of a venture capitalist in, in a traditional term. And, uh, and, uh, it was, it, it was after Blick. So, uh, Blick was a very brave, uh, company trying to bring the advertising funded model into mobile. I mean, every, every mass media is, is ad funded, but mobile is not. So we had an idea. Uh, to do that in mobile, but um, it, it became quite clear after a couple of years around 2009 that the business model doesn't work. So there's too little ad revenue and then too much cost in, in providing this free airtime for, for young people. 
And, and at that time, uh, one of my friends, uh, Petteri Koponen, uh, who is an entrepreneur also by his background, uh, had just kind of finished uh, his lockup uh, period at Google of, after selling his company there. And, and, and then we got together and uh, we had few like uh, uh, digital health, mobile uh, startup ideas, and we wanted to do something together. But uh, it almost accidentally happened that a lot of people in, in the local ecosystem in Finland started to contact us and, and ask for advice. And, and, and then we ended up investing our own very little money at that time uh, into these companies like 10, 20, 30,000 max per company. And suddenly we had like a 10 portfolio, you know, or 10 company portfolio together in, in six months or, or seven months. And, and then we thought that, hey, this is actually quite fun. Uh, investing into these like a super early stage projects and, and, and kind of work many companies at the same time instead of only running your own, own company. So aside from the fact that they were all very early stage, were there other particular themes which governed those initial investments, particular areas or skill sets that you were looking to invest in back then? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because, um, <clears throat> I mean, games uh, was pretty obvious. Uh, I mean, we were probably the first ones um, I can't say in the world, but, but, but it could actually be true that we were almost or among the first ones in the world who started to do like very systematic, uh, angel investing in games. And, uh, and what I mean is that in like nine month period, um, you know, we invested into, uh, six to nine games companies. So one per month and, and in a very systematic process. And, and, and obviously, Finland, it was a good place and still is a good place to do that because uh, games is, is a very strong cluster here with Rovio and Supercell, uh, where we were among the first investors. Um, and then there are like anchor companies in Finland who are kind of cultivating the talent to move forward and, and establish their next games company. So, so the ecosystem is very strong here. Why do you think there is that strength in the ecosystem in Finland? Are there particular skills coming out of, say, the Finnish university system which lend themselves to creating those good game yeah. experiences? Yeah, I mean, not not necessarily. I mean, the roots of the Finnish games ecosystem, they go back to the, uh, you know, the 80s when, you know, with Commodore 64 and, and, and the later versions of, or the early versions of PC, there was a very active, like a demo Scheme. So people were doing this like a demos and competing on the graphics capabilities against each other and, and, and all that. So that was really the beginning. And, uh, and, and, and then when Nokia was dominating the mobile phone area, they were actually the first ones who, you know, wanted to bring entertainment into phones with, you know, snake <laughs> mobile game is probably the best kind of early version of that. And, and, and they had the first multimedia phones and, and, and all that. And, and, and it was probably kind of at that period in the, in the 90s and, and, and then in the early 2000 or, or after the millennium when kind of Nokia was putting a lot of effort on, on, on there and there were a lot of subcontractors to Nokia. There were a lot of game developers on the early Java games. Uh, and, and, and somehow that uh, community has been like a super active and super cohesive in Finland. So, so they are kind of a self-organizing unit uh, to keeping connection with each other and uh, organize different events and all that. And if you study any like research that has been done about the ecosystems, kind of a startup ecosystems, one of the key thing for the competence to develop is kind of a self-organized uh, 
kind of a networking and, and that has been there for like 20 years in Finland already even more among that community. In terms of the timeline for setting up Lifeline, how did that relate to, uh, I guess, what you could call the most disruptive period in terms of what was happening within Nokia? Because I suppose it's it's hard to overstate the importance of Nokia to the technology industry within Finland. And clearly, there was that time when Nokia was going through a great deal of transition and perhaps still is to a certain extent. Uh, and did you find that that had a knock-on effect on what was happening within that startup community that you were looking to invest in? Yeah. So a lot, a lot of people are saying that uh, right now, uh, when Nokia is is going open, when Nokia was going down, now it's actually going up again. But when it was going down, that there was a lot of kind of a capable people who were freed up to startups, and and a lot of Nokians uh, found it startup companies but I'm a little bit controversial I take a controversial approach there I mean uh, at the time when Nokia started to go down there were no entrepreneurs left at Nokia anymore I mean all the entrepreneurs would have been leaving far far before you know that happened the, the kind of a plunge happened because that's the nature how the entrepreneurs work so so Nokia has not been really feeding entrepreneurs to the Finnish ecosystem uh, but obviously it has been kind of feeding additional resources um, because best people typically, you know, leave first. And, and then if you look locally here, uh, what's available, where it's a startup, uh, you know, ecosystem. And, and there's a lot of interesting companies that people were joining. And uh, from Lifeline's point of view, the kind of Nokia collapse or the collapsing years of Nokia, uh, I don't think that they have been the defining factor to kind of our success in any other way, but the government has been boosting the startup ecosystem a lot. So, so if you look what happened in 2009, 2010, 2011, uh, the public funding to startups have gone up, uh, the political interest to startups have gone up, uh, the universities have been transforming from like, uh, we are educating uh, people to work at Nokia into we really want to start start our entrepreneurial practices. So, so the whole kind of a focus of society in Finland is shifting from supporting big companies into creating startup ecosystem that could actually be one of the top in the world. And and, and that's that, that's the kind of a shift that has been happening. But from resource point of view, I don't think it's the Nokia resource. It's it's more of the kind of a fresh university resource. That is not anymore thinking that I want to work for Nokia or I want to work for McKinsey, but they are kind of seeing for the first time right now that entrepreneurship is a career alternative. And being an entrepreneur is a young people's game. I mean, it's a difficult to uh, found your first company when you are, you know, 45 and you have all the commitments and kids and families and, you know, mortgages and, and whatever. So you need to establish your first company when you are young. So thinking about some of those characteristics of entrepreneurship that you're talking about there. One of the things which uh, always struck me about Blick, and in fact, you and I ended up doing a, a little bit of work around uh, when Blick was first coming together, yeah. was about the importance of user experience. And for Blick, although uh, its strategy didn't play out to become a, a commercial success over the long term, there was always that uh, primacy given 
to user experience. And I'm wondering, is that something which has carried over into what you now look for uh, with your portfolio companies at Lifeline? Is that still a key characteristic that you, you evaluate within uh, the, the portfolio companies? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you are correct there. And, um, and, and a user experience is in, in mobile, for example. If you talk about mobile apps, um, so user experience is everything. So uh, we have learned a lot, lot in, in investing in these games companies. Uh, you can have class of clans, and, and, and then you have like tens or dozens of copies, but none of the copies is as good as the original. And, and, and the difference is really partially in user experience. So it is just the best mobile apps are so smooth to use, so they are so well designed, they are so well executed to the latest detail. Uh, the design is including nitty-gritty details and nice graphics exactly where needed, but on the other hand, they are very like a Spartan uh, and, and kind of utility-driven on the other side where those type of qualities are needed. And, and, and that is something that is a very rare skill in the world, actually. And, and it is a skill that is undermined in the world. So many app developers think that, hey, it's really easy to develop apps. So you look at the apps like, you know, Facebook mobile app, for example, which is kind of a utility app. And, and you would think that it's easy to develop, but it's actually really difficult to first make the user experience decisions on the front end, what to put there, what to not put there, and, and, and then to enable that kind of a simplified UX on your back end in a way that everything is kind of a hidden from the user and, and everything works smoothly. And uh, it is something that the company either has or it doesn't have. And, and we have kind of concluded that it's really difficult to outsource as well. So if the founders don't have that skill, they can't buy it. So you can't go to the design agency and say that, hey, I have this idea about this mobile app. So can you make it user friendly? It just doesn't work that way. So the UX in mobile starts from the product kind of a design process, or it's, it's the really essential part of the product design process. That is interesting because there's um, obviously a, a real pull at the moment for design agencies to cater more to uh, the startup community, not least because the startup community worldwide is obviously increasingly active and more and more vibrant. You know, there's, there's more and more startups emerging and design agencies are seeing that as a key area that they need to target and be able to work with better. Uh, but I take your point about wanting to see those skills within the founders and have it core uh, to the company. I mean, have you come across any examples where um, you've had founders who have an excellent technical background, an excellent technical idea, and they have ended up being able to work successfully in partnership with a design agency? Or do you feel that uh, that should always be something that is embedded within the, the core team of, of people behind the startup? It needs to be the core team. And, and, and actually, uh, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of companies who come to us and say that uh, hey, we have this mobile app idea. And then I'm in a way that, hey, okay, so let's look at your demo because the team uh, needs to be able to pull the demo together. And, and, and then you see a, a very like a skeleton, non-usable version, which, which is kind of a horrible. And, and, and then you ask that, uh, all right, so how will you design this? And, and then the answer is that this is just a demo. So once we have the basics and technology correct, uh, 
then we do the design on top of that. So it's very easy to do once we have the technology ready, but that's entirely wrong way of doing it. So if you are doing something in mobile, you really need to start with the user experience, which is not the graphics only, it's the entire flow, the way how the user interacts and, and, and all that. So that's kind of a turn of factor for us. So if you see a prototype and we get an answer that we will kind of later embed the design on top of that, it, it's not going to work. So the design in mobile is so fundamental and, and, and the competition is so heavy on App Store. Um, we have a great example of, of one company we invested already a few years ago called Moves app, which was um, measuring how you move during the day and, and it was drawing a, a route automatically uh, on the map. So it's basically a kind of a pedometer. So, it, you know, 10,000 steps per day is the health uh, recommendation and so forth. And it was recognizing if you run walk, cycle, or, or commute. And it, it was really extremely well designed. So it was one of the best design CEOs that we have ever had in our, you know, companies we work with. Uh, on the same date, uh, globally, or the, on the same kind of a month or, or same time frame, roughly like 50 similar apps were launched. So that was the time when everybody wanted to go to digital health and, and all that. But, but this Moves app, because of the design, it won the Apple Awards, it got featured, it got very good word of mouth and, and, and everything else. And, and all, the, all the competitors were seemingly very similar. Uh, Moves kind of grew a user base that was maybe 20 to 50 times larger than any of these competitors, just because of that kind of a design approach. Now, when you first saw Moves, when they first came into your office to demo that to you, what particular characteristics grabbed you about the user experience and made you think this is something where design can be that differentiator for them? They were thinking about the user context. So they were not saying that, hey, we, de we developed a pedometer that is very accurate and it's very simple and so forth and so forth. But they had actually made a, a very rudimentary version that measures steps and recognizes how you move and uh, they had been putting that out to like a hundred or two hundred of their closest friends who have had been using it for several weeks and then they were collecting feedback and having discussions with people that is this something that you would use and how would this integrate in your daily life and how would you utilize this type of an app so they were actually kind of starting from the kind of a context that does this have a lot or, or if how should we design this so that this fits into normal people's life. That was the kind of the starting question that they had. And, and then from that starting question, they did the first like alpha version very quickly. They started to develop the technology to be the most accurate, you know, step counter and, and movement recognition in the world. And, and then on the other hand, they had a really like a talented design CEO uh, who was then thinking that, you know, how do we make this as effortless as we can? That was the design principle and as beautiful as we can. And if you still go to App Store and you download Moves, it's still available there. Uh, you can kind of get the feeling that, hey, this looks like the world's best designed, you know, activity tracking app. So you immediately get that idea when you download it and when you open it and everything. So, and, and it all started from, we want to solve a problem and we want to understand how the design in a broader perspective fits into 
you know, how this app should be crafted that we can solve the problem. It, it was really embedded there from the very beginning. Well, as you say, it sounds like the CEO himself um, came from that strong design background and I guess could lead from the, the front in that regard and ensure that it was really important within the organization. Uh, I mean, one of the things which comes up quite often for me in conversations with startups, particularly when they're looking around for investment, is they're trying to get an understanding themselves about how much of their budget, how much of their time, how much of the team should be dedicated to user experience and how they should communicate that to investors. Because uh, it sounds like uh, within Lifeline, you're probably among uh, the upper echelons of those investors which um, give importance to user experience. But of course, not all investors are yet on, on that page. So I mean, what would you say to teams, for instance, within the MEX community who are in that position at the moment and considering going to investors for the first time or to you know move from C to their, their first Series A round about how they communicate that commitment to user experience to their potential investors and, and what sort of proportion of their resources they should be dedicating uh, to that question. So this is like a really difficult difficult question to answer from the point of view that uh, you can say in a way that we have an R&D team of five and we have a one person dedicated to UX and, and we hire a, a UX specialist. Because typically these like UX specialists that you hire, they are not really good in, in, in general. That's my experience. So, so, so it's more that you need to find a good one and you need to integrate that kind of a thinking into the product process. If, if you understand what I mean. So, so typically, uh, the bad companies and bad startups are thinking UX like you know, quality, for example, in a, you know, companies that are under, you know, medical regulation, you need to have a quality manager who takes care of the quality process because otherwise your products don't get FDA approval. Uh, so you need to have a UX designer because otherwise your product is not well designed. So that's the kind of the, the bad thinking. The good thinking is in a way that, hey, like in the moves case, we say that the average people are lacking tools to uh, measure their daily activities and become more more aware how they can you know live healthier lives, um, and that's the problem. And, and and then we start to figure out that how should we design an app that can solve that problem? So first of all, it needs to be totally effortless. Uh, second of all, it can't drain your battery. Like if you have Sports Tracker or Endomondo or any of these, which you could use for the similar purposes, your battery dies in three hours. So obviously that cannot be you know, the UX that you have, uh, then it needs to be, it cannot be intrusive to your life, but it needs to be like uh, active enough that it reminds you and, and it draws you certain recommendations and, and everything. It needs to be something that you are, is easy for you to forget because not everybody wants to follow everything on a day-by-day -day basis. It's too tedious. It needs to collect long-term trends and so forth and so forth. So that's the kind of... Uh, the problem definition and, and then you think that how are you establishing that with the product that you are building and then that's the kind of a UX so it needs to be like every R&D guy in the team is up to that task instead of you are trying to kind of put the UX sticker on it if, if you understand what I'm meaning and it's, it's a really difficult uh, to say that you are focusing on building good products that users love unless you really are that so I think that this is a question that 
it, these are like a really soft things and, and you, you can't put them into budget. It's almost like every person in a company needs to be a salesperson. So if you are doing a, a mobile app, every person in a company needs to be focusing on a, on a you know, user experience because it's so critical kind of a factor that is defining success or failure in the app store. Yeah, I think that's an ethos which is shared by many within our MEX community and I suppose has been central to what we've always tried to do with the initiative is this idea that user experience is the complete experience and it's something which involves all of those disparate parts of the industry of different job roles in, in making that happen. But just going back to moves, because I think that is, it's an interesting example and it's one which always impressed me when I first saw it. Um, and it seemed to me that the beauty of that app and a lot of the value came from quite a counterintuitive insight, uh, which was that uh, I think you alluded to it earlier, that actually for most people, the value in that app was being able to forget about it for long periods of time. It didn't try to uh, force its user experience into users' faces and require their attention all of the time. And I wonder whether or not you feel that insight could have come from anything other than that kind of iterative, almost co-creative process of building it with those initial 100 or 200 testers as part of the design process. Because, you know, I think for a lot of startups, obviously all of their focus as a team is on, look at this great product we're building as a user experience. And they put a lot of importance on that. They have a lot of pride in it. And it takes almost like an anti-ego to be able to take a step back from that and say, you know what, our app isn't the most important thing to our users all of the time. Actually, what we need to be able to do is be very good at hiding in the background until they need us. You know, is that something um, which could only have come out of that sort of user-centered design process, do you think? Uh, yeah, that's right. Of course, there are product people who kind of uh, out of skill or out of luck just, you know, design the product that everybody loves, but, but, but typically my experience, I mean, we have invested into, into 60 companies and there are B2C, B2B companies and so forth. So, and, and many of them are in mobile. So we have a lot of experience on this. Uh, I mean, you need to have these iterations. I mean, it goes without saying, and in the case of moves, uh, Sampo and Apo, who were the two founders from the design and technical point of view, they are among the top people in the world in their own categories. Uh, and, and still they just do the tedious, rigorous, structured process of listening to the users, right? So I think that the answer to your question is that no, I don't think that these guys would have been able to frame the product and design the product as well as they did without doing these iterative cycles. And, and then it all started and it all needs to start from, uh, you know, questioning your own thoughts. And I'm not talking about the moves in specific, but, but everything in general, like, like question your thoughts in a way that, hey, I have a hypothesis that the world needs to have an app like that, you know, what I'm building. But then you need to be brutal for your own ideas and, and question it in a way that, hey, let's try this out and test if people really love it or if they don't even need it. And, and, and then be able to abandon the ideas if they are like, don't prove to be good. And, and I guess that the public information on, on a supercell, um, as a games company speaking on that, 
on on that behalf. So so they are kind of uh, abandoning abandoning more games than they are launching. And, and the idea is exactly that, you know, as the user feedback gathers and as the team satisfaction gathers, is that then there's a decision point whether or not to launch. And uh, and at the same goes with these consumer products like apps like Moves and and, and everything else is that there needs to be this constant like questioning whether or not this is actually something you want to launch. So I'm going to include a link to Moves in the show notes because I think uh, our listeners would find it interesting to have a look at that themselves uh, as an example of, of good user experience. And of course, and as an example of a commercial success story as well, because as I understand, uh, Moves then went on to have a successful sale to, to Facebook. Uh, but it's interesting, um, I think, in how it frames your overall portfolio too, because of course it represents those dual interests in the healthcare and wellness side of things and the mobile side of things as well. But I'm curious about um, your personal interest in this, Timo. I mean, where did that interest in making the transition and the play into to healthcare and wellness uh, in terms of your, your portfolio companies come from? Is that something which has been present in your uh, previous parts of your career or has had a personal interest around healthcare? It's maybe, uh, I mean, my first uh, kind of a more serious company uh, was a clinical trials data capture company called CRF Health, um, which is currently market leader uh, with maybe 100 million euros in revenues. Uh, we made an exit from that company about two years ago as a founders. Um, and, uh, and, and and there I kind of got very involved with the medical, you know, things. So I was involved in over 250 clinical trials as, as a supplier and, and I got to know to a lot of many different disease classes and, and all that. Um, so I got to, I have a really good kind of a basic understanding, you know, how health and disease works. And, uh, and, and, and then when kind of uh, getting out of bleak, um, I was looking at the world and, uh, and, and I, I have this belief that many other people are sharing as well, is that the really big, big revolution in healthcare is ahead. And, and it comes via prevention, it comes via like a voluntary consumer activity, and, and then it comes via like digital health or quantitative health, as, as, as I call it myself. So, so that has led um, then into, into investments in this area, like a gene or genome uh, data management companies and analysis companies and, and things like moves that are very casual that people can use to, to, to feel better. So so that's maybe the background in, in, in health. So currently maybe 20% of our investments are in health or healthcare or, or consumer health area. And it's interesting to consider how health and user-centered design uh, come together like that because you, you mentioned there about that idea of the, the voluntary commitment of users to improving their own health and using technology to do that which of course with any of these things for improving our overall well-being it takes a certain amount of, of personal commitment to be able to do that yeah you, know, you can only take people so far through a, a medical system and a kind of top-down approach you know unless there's that sort of personal commitment to living a healthier life you're not going to get tremendously far with that so it brings you into the area of i suppose what you could broadly call behavioral change where of course user-centered design and the, the way in which you shape those customer experiences is, is of primary importance but 
for you when you think about those kind of investments in the area of uh, healthcare, uh, what are some of the unique characteristics, the unique user experience characteristics, which become important once an app or a service starts to fall into that category of, of healthcare or well-being? Are there things there which you need to consider as an investor, as someone evaluating these kind of companies, uh, which go beyond what you would need to consider, say, if you were looking at a gaming startup or something around social or, or, or these other yeah. areas? Yeah. So in this like um, consumer health um one, one thing that is surprising, but it's so true, is that all of these things that work, they are totally effortless for the user, almost almost totally effortless. So it's this funny contradiction that health is something that people rate as, you know, top things in their life, like with, I want to have health and good relationship and so forth. And then only after, you know, many, many times comes like the money and these sort of things. So the basic safety and health is like very high up in the hierarchy. But, but then we are not, you know, willing to pay attention to it too much. So, and, and that goes to the technology. Uh, I mean, I've been following, I've been using all the body trackers, you know, since 95 that were available, uh, you know, 10, 15 years before Fitbit kind of a breakthrough was there or we even started to talk about these variables in masses. So I've kind of had, and I used every like a tracker on old Palm Pilots, you know, to track my nutrition and, and diets and, and all that. And obviously we have gone a long way from those early versions. But if you look at success or failure of those companies, and, and there's far more failures than successes, that the, almost the only commonalities is, is very low level of effort required from the consumer, and uh, and uh, right now uh, we have another investment. Uh, we have a ring um, which is measuring your heartbeat and and the way how your nervous system is recovering from uh, stress. Uh, it's measuring your body temperature and and the, your activity and everything. It's called Aura Ring. Uh, we can probably share the, the URL in the in the podcast notes. Uh, there as well. The reason why I got excited about it, it's in a way that you only put it in your finger and then it automatically starts tracking everything. So it doesn't have, the ring doesn't have a UI. It doesn't have any flashing LED lights. It, it's built to be like a really idiot proof in a way that you put it in your ring. It starts to measure all the data goes in the cloud where you then have, whenever you open your uh, mobile, you have the latest analysis available there. Um, we did a really successful Kickstarter campaign about half a year ago, and, and the Kickstarter rings are right now shipping around 3,000 of them to the, the first people who get those. And then everybody is like super excited, especially the professional uh, kind of a sleep science community and, and the people who are running sleep clinics are, are like extremely excited. And the reason is that they say that this is the first time where you have an effortless tracker to track sleep. And it's even too much for people to, you know, press press one button or, or connect a device to their mobile phone and start tracking their sleep. It's, it's a one extra step that people just don't take. So, so I mean, I'm always said that in a health technology, if you have a gadget that requires you to press two buttons, and then you can reduce that two buttons to one button, and you can reduce that one button to zero buttons, you probably like 
3x or 10x your probability to be successful with that company with every button you remove, even if you only had like a two to start with. And it really is that way. And that's why Moves was more successful than anybody else. And that's why I believe that the things like Aura Ring will be more successful than some other variables that are requiring the user to do a lot more. So it's effortless. Do you uh, draw a distinction when you're looking at these kind of experiences between those which target personal wellness uh, and that kind of user-led voluntary approach to wanting to improve their health versus those which are actually being prescribed through a medical system? Do you see a difference between the kind of design approaches that you would need for those kind of products? Yeah, of, of, of course. I mean, <clears throat> uh, I think that within the next 10 years, uh, we are going to see that uh, the current medical devices, which are really ugly to use, uh, the kind of a hardcore medical devices, uh, they are becoming more and more usable and, and more and more towards consumer electronics and and uh, and a kind of a usability approach is becoming a key. I mean, and you can already see it. So, if you take the heaviest example, so you take the you know oncology and and you have the radiotherapy equipment. I mean, that's just extremely difficult to use for the care staff. I mean, the calibration, the treatment programs, and everything. It's like. I mean, you would be surprised, like living with all these consumer apps and, you know, sleek technology to open up the UI of a radiotherapy device. And, and it's even a, a danger to patient because it's so difficult. It's so easy to get it wrong if you just look the way how the UI is built and the way how the machines are operated and all that. Yeah, I came across an example of this personally recently, actually, where uh, my partner who works in veterinary medicine, uh, they received a a new imaging machine uh, at their practice. And I was amazed when she was describing the sort of process that was involved just in setting that machine up where they actually had to have specialists in, despite the fact that obviously the people who were operating this machine were all qualified medical professionals themselves and had all been doing this kind of stuff for years. They actually had to have in a team of specialists from the manufacturer company to talk them through over the course of multiple days the setup uh, of this particular piece of equipment. Because as you say, that UI was yeah, something which had kind of come out of the, the 1980s. Yeah, that's right. So they are really 80s technology from that point of view. And, and within the next 10 years, I mean, the more kind of a modern approach in the UI design of, of, of these machines is, is, is certainly going to hit the ground. The second big wave is if you take step down, so you have a blood glucose monitors, you have spirometers that asthmatic people are using, uh, you have different like uh, self-administered injections and, and so forth. I mean, my claim is that you could take any of these areas where you have a traditional patient, uh, you know, user for a piece of medical technology, and you could take any of those areas and revolutionize it with good user design uh, and kind of a thinking the total problem in a different way, like like not only as a device but as a software, as a, as a data analysis, and, and 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 as a kind of a really as a user experience, and obviously. What we are seeing right now in the diabetes area, there's a lot of like, like smartphone type of integrated blood glucose monitors, 
there's a lot of insulin pumps and, and all that. But I, I still think that we are only seeing the, you know, tip of the iceberg in, in, in that area. And you could still take almost any area and revolutionize it with, with better user design. So that's happening. And then there are the force that is driving it is obviously consumerism in healthcare. And then the second really big wave is that like, if you have these UX skills, it's really difficult to make difference in app store in consumer apps. But if you have these UX skills, it's really easy to make a difference in medical field. So my kind of a hypothesis is that a lot of people are transferring from traditional consumer things into kind of medical things within the next five to 10 years. And, and you know, uh, redesigning something that helps people to cope with the disease or become healthier. It's, it's obviously a higher purpose in life than, you know, making entertainment. We could have a philosophical discussion on that. But I know that a lot of people are, you know, having these type of thoughts in their mind. It is a particularly compelling challenge. And in fact, when we ran some sessions a few years ago within the MEX initiative to get people thinking about uh, the particular characteristics of user-centered design as they related to healthcare, uh, it became apparent quite quickly that it was not only a compelling challenge in terms of the meaningfulness of the work that you were able to do in that area, but also um, that it was a really complex challenge as a user experience practitioner. And one of the main reasons seemed to be that, uh, of course, when you're designing these kind of things, it's not just about one type of user almost always, and particularly when you start straying into things which are being prescribed uh, for wellness and, and healthcare rather than just things which are being used by an individual user. You're actually dealing with multiple user groups for the same product. So you have the patient themselves who are obviously a user. You then have the medical practitioners who are responsible for prescribing and monitoring that. But then you also have this quite um, vague uh, additional network of support people who might be, say, family members who are helping that person to deal with their particular healthcare challenge. Or they might just be, uh, you know, people within the kind of social services who are involved in, in looking after that person. So you've got all of these multiple different constituencies, which are all essentially users of that same system. And all of their considerations need to be rolled into how it's designed. So it's not just about understanding one particular user, the patient, and what's best for them. It's about understanding how you can balance all of those different things. And for user experience practitioners, you know, that's almost the uh, the ultimate challenge um, and perhaps requires, uh, you know, a bit of a different approach to how most companies and agencies work, uh, work currently. Um, but it, it does also bring into question the role of um, government, if you like, in this sphere, for companies, uh, for countries rather, which have uh, state-supported healthcare. Um, clearly, there's a vested interest uh, among governments in seeing these kind of solutions roll out and helping people improve their health because they can make a direct link to the sort of funding and, and budget savings uh, which could be achieved by people being able to be in better health and to do that with more efficient methods. Now, I know that one of your other roles um, is with Tekes, uh, that is um, part of the, the way in which the Finnish government supports innovation and, and technology. Um, for those who are not familiar with it, perhaps you could just describe a little bit about how Tekes works and the, the role that it plays within stimulating communities and the, the technology industry within Finland. Yeah. So, so. First of all, Tekes um, 
it's a technology development agency of Finland, I guess it's the full name. Um, on a European level, um, it's thought to be one of the most effective kind of government policies, you know, fostering innovation, as, as, as they say it nicely. Uh, in practice, uh, what, is mean, what it means is that there's approximately uh, 600 million euros per year um, that is then allocated into different initiatives. And, and uh, roughly you can say that there are three baskets of money. Uh, one, go, one basket goes for the uh, kind of SMEs. Uh, the other basket goes for the uh, research organizations like universities who are doing things together with the big corporations. And, and, and then the third basket uh, is startups. And, uh, and, and these are roughly like one third, one third, one third. Uh, now, if there's a techist person listening to this, they will probably email me and say that you <laughs> made too many assumptions. So I'm just trying to make this division really simple for the listeners. And uh, and, and that one third to startups, it's it, it's between like 150 to 200 million uh, euros per year. So it's like an extremely big amount of money that goes into government, uh, very soft loans or, or direct grants into startups. and. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm obviously more familiar with the start, startup category. It's, it's typically like uh, from 30 to uh, 70 percent like loan or grant. So you need to have then the rest as a private money coming into the company. Uh, it's, it has been very effective. So, so every euro that TechS invests is bringing like two to three euros back to the uh, economy. So the kind of effectiveness is, is, is very high. And, and, and when do you think it's at its most effective? I mean, what are some of the, the driving themes or the characteristics of those uh, investments and support that it's giving where you have seen it uh, to, to come out with a, an effective outcome? Yeah, and now I'm talking obviously about the startup category, right? Um, so um, it has been varying. Uh, so what Tegas has been really good at is, is adjusting the direction. So it, it's, it, it's not operating in a five-year plan, so three-year plans, but it's more towards like a one-year plans currently. And, uh, and, and at the current kind of tendencies in a way that uh, because we want to develop the startup ecosystem to be very vibrant and big in Finland, we first need to have mass. So we need to have a mass of startups, uh, which turns out that we, which kind of a transfers into it is relatively easy to get the first like 50 to 100,000 euros from tickets, provided that you have private investment that is supporting it. So, so that's very easy, very fast to get. So we get a lot of companies, a lot of entrepreneurs into the market. And, and, and then after that, you need to prove yourself that you are actually able to execute the project. Uh, and, and it becomes like increasingly difficult to get the money when the amounts go higher. And, and at the techs can, I mean, even for a smaller startup, I mean, the total amount per project can go up to, you know, four to six million per company. So it's a very flexible instrument starting from tens of thousands to those millions. And, and, and then back to your question, uh, when is this most effective? I think it's most effective, uh, in the, Kind of the early early days of the company. That's the first point. When there's pro- most probably there's like uh, too little cash available 
for the company to raise compared to plans that they have. And, 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 and I mean, I'm a big believer in, in like the company needs to be really scarce in capital. So, so if you have less money, you make better decisions compared to if you have a lot of money. But then on the other hand, if you have money available, you can have a longer term plans. Uh, you can do things properly. Uh, you can execute your long term vision in, instead of like optimizing on a short term. And, and I mean, all of the events where techs can do that. So provide additional money to the private investment that is actually enabling companies to do things more properly, which, which doesn't mean less aggressively, but more properly. Those are the kind of the best areas. And they are typically the R&D loans, um, for example, of, of half a million in a situation where a company has just raised like 1.5 million seed round from from private markets. You've made the, the point a few times in our discussion about that the importance of that ecosystem uh, which exists to support startups and enables them to punch above their weight in delivering better user experience. And it sounds like Techers obviously plays a, a role in, in crafting that. It sounds like uh, investors such as yourself have a, a role in it as well. Um, but when you think about that sort of broad ecosystem out there, are there other components to it which you feel are important to ensure that startups working in this area of mobile and health and experience design um, have that kind of positive community around them to, to help them do good work? You know, are, there, are there other things which you feel are important or are missing currently within Finland that you'd like to see more of? Yeah. <clears throat> so first of all, in, in order to have the, I think that the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Finland is very strong. So, so if you think about the number of startups, uh, you think about startup founders, you think about talent that is coming to the local ecosystem. I mean, that is like very strong. Uh, there are like U.S. investors coming to Finland. Uh, they visit Stockholm, they visit Berlin, they visit London, they visit other countries. And then typically they say that Finland has a really unique community aspect what comes to the startup entrepreneurship. So it means that people are really wanting to help each other. They are really coming together to solve the problems. They are really actively advising each other and, and, and all that. And then if you look at uh, academic studies in the area, or if you look at the kind of the really successful startup ecosystems like Silicon Valley and so forth, I'm, I mean, this is the building block. And I was referring to this earlier talking about the games sector in Finland. So there has been a games ecosystem starting from those like computer demos in the 80s, uh, turning into graphics, turning into Java games, and, 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 and now on the smartphones then finally. So it has been like a super active, and, and, and that's the strength. So when you have the active, self-organized group of people who are keeping it together and advising each other, that's the fundamental. And I think that what is the kind of a ground jewel of that is the SLAS startup conference. I'm sitting in the board of, of SLAS organizing committee as well. And, uh, and, and I'm just that vibrancy and energy and uh, fearlessness that people have in, in, in doing this. So there was a bunch of students like a five years ago who decided that we want to do the world's best startup conference and we want to locate it in Helsinki in the darkest time of the year. 
which is November, December, and we call it Schloss because that's the unique thing that we have in Helsinki. We don't have sun, we don't have palm trees, but we have darkness and Schloss. So let's make that unique, right? And then right now that everybody who comes to Schloss is totally blown away by, you know, the vibrancy and the community and the way how people are treated and the types of the discussions that they have. And, and, and that is the strength of the ecosystem. And now then what is missing is that, okay, the ecosystem outside of games is, is, is relatively young. So, but it's, it's growing extremely fast. So, so if you look at the number of companies that are founded every year, it's, it's, it's growing like crazy. And if you look at the talent that is coming to work in startup instead of big companies, like I was saying, it's, it's totally crazy. So I think in the evolution, we have been taking maybe the first three or four steps and, and, and then the next steps are going to be taken within the next five years. It's just growing to extend in, in other areas than games as well. Yes. And as you say, it's, it's wonderful to see events like Slush thriving in a place like Helsinki. I mean, as you know, events are a subject close to my own heart as well. And it, it's lovely when you see uh, an event which uh, can really use the unique characteristics of its local community to bring in those international viewpoints and show people a little bit about what's unique about their own place and their own community, be that the wonderful slush that you get on the streets in Helsinki at that time of year, or be that the, uh, you know, the other characteristics of the ecosystem. Uh, now, um, for you personally, Timo, and if you look at your career or your, your LinkedIn profile, it, it has all the hallmarks of uh, that um, those characteristics of, of entrepreneurship that you have done multiple things over the years and have this history of being involved in, in starting up interesting and, and innovative new companies. Um, is there anything as you look to the future uh, that you have not yet done that you've got your eye on and you think, well, um, after Lifeline Ventures or uh, when you come to your, your next project, there's a particular thing that you're still keen to get your teeth into that you've not had a chance to do yet? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, um, so, so, the problem, so the problem in many startup ecosystems uh, is that they are not able to grow like long-lasting companies. So if you, if you talk about, think about Israel, for example, I mean, the, and, and just Google, you know, the latest discussion. So Israelis uh, are extremely concerned that they are not able to grow like big anchor companies. So, so all the companies are sold with few hundred million uh, dollars forward as they grow to a certain size. And, uh, and then our goal at Lifeline right now is that we would like to, we would like to establish a, a, a funding company or, or a financial company or, or venture capital company or whatever you call it that would be able to be part of developing these anchor companies. So, so big companies that are lasting over decades in, in, in Finland. So that's our goal. And it's a really difficult goal because once you grow to a certain size, you get the really high acquisition ticket. So the temptation to sell is extremely high for the founders and investors and everybody. But we are trying to develop the models where we could actually grow big companies instead of develop them to a certain size and, and then sell them. Um, that is our long-term goal. Well, if you look at the history of Finland, I suppose Nokia is the standout example of a company which 
has stood the test of time, although it's been through numerous guises during that journey and yet has endured and hopefully will continue to, to go on to do interesting work. Um, but Timo, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to come and share all your ideas around the importance of design and how that plays into investment. It's been a, a really intriguing discussion from my perspective. And um, you know, thank you for, uh, for making the time to do it. Yeah. Hey, this is really great. So, um, so thanks, thanks for having me. This was a really great discussion. It was. And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Don't forget that you can find show notes in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, and please recommend the podcast to your friends and colleagues. Uh, they can search for it by looking for Mex Design Talk in their favorite podcast player uh, or point them to mobileuserexperience.com where all of the episodes are archived. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.